So anyway, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. And we are today headed down an incredible journey through the summer called The Life. We are going to be focusing on the life of Jesus Christ and how he really brought the full uh, gift of heaven to us, the gift of love and grace to earth. And we're going to talk about how he changed the world. We're going to talk about how Jesus Christ, this peasant from the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, is now the spiritual leader of half the planet and growing. So in order to uh, get a little context on our study, we're going to uh, go to a, a scholar, and we'll do this all throughout the study. We're going to go through video clips, and we're going to see exactly what the ministry of Jesus is all about. And I believe through the summer, we're going to know him better than we've ever known him before. Let's take a look. Accounts tell us that around 30 AD, this Jesus suffers the worst death the state can impose on non-Romans. His life is literally squeezed out of him by slow and excruciating crucifixion, as if he were just a common criminal. It's the iconic image of Christianity, the key event from which all else will flow. But the mystery for me is how one man and a few followers become a huge spiritual movement, a religion for over half the world. That's the question that all biblical scholars ask. How is it possible that this uneducated peasant from a far-flung region of the Roman Empire can now, 2,000 years later, be the spiritual leader of half the planet. That's astounding. I mean, can you get your head around that? That is astounding. How could that happen? Especially considering the fact that in the Roman Empire, how you died determined the legacy of your life. That's why the Romans crucified people who stood against their state. Because if they could crucify them in humiliation, then their entire life would be tagged as a humiliated life and they would be forgotten. People would want nothing to do with them. If somebody was crucified, their family would disown them, their whole family would be ashamed because their death determined their legacy. And so when the Romans crucified Jesus, they thought, that's it. We are humiliating this man by his death, so certainly he will be humiliated now for the rest of his memory, but that's not the way it happened. In fact, the followers of Christ turned that around, that his crucifixion was not just humiliating, but it was in fact an act of love, of great love. As we talked about already, greater love is no man than this, than he give his life, laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus looks at us and says, you're my friends. And so they turned around this humiliating crucifixion to be this great act of love, which it was. And that love became the model of Christianity itself and spread throughout the globe. So the question for us today and through the rest of the summer is how did this obscure, uneducated peasant from a remote and despised region of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago change the world? Because that's astounding. That history is incredible. And it all centers around the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus' given name at his birth was the name Yeshu. That's his name in the province of Galilee where he was born north of Jerusalem. Uh, throughout Galilee his name would have been called Yeshua, which could be pronounced Yeshua or Joshua. His Hebrew name is Joshua. In Greek, that name is Jesus, Jesus. And that's what we know him today as. We know him as 
Jesus. And the life of Jesus is the most famous life to ever have been lived. And this summer, we're going to talk about how he went from a peasant to a teacher to a leader to a master to a Lord, and now through the cross, the Savior and spiritual leader of half the planet. So today is an introduction. We're going to focus on the life of Christ. And the way we're going to get to the life of Christ is by deconstructing a lot of things that have been packed onto his life. A formal religion has been packed onto the life of Jesus. So in order to get to the actual life of Christ, we have to deconstruct all of Christianity to get to the life of Jesus. And then over the summer, we're going to rebuild it one story at a time. And we're going to do that introduction today. We're going to deconstruct all of Christianity today to try to get to the core life of Jesus. You ready? Let's start with the institution itself. Christianity. This is the the big institutional religion, 34,000 global denominations, 9,000 U.S. denominations. Every one of those denominations is, is an institution. Every church is an institution. Now, institutions aren't bad. Institutions, I think, can be very good. In fact, institutionalism can be some of the greatest forces on earth for good if they're properly used. The problem with Christianity is that Christianity doesn't look a whole lot like the movement Jesus started 2,000 years ago. So in order to find the life of Christ, you have to deconstruct Christianity. In fact, I'll say this very boldly, you cannot examine the life and ministry of Jesus and say that the life and ministry of Jesus looks like Christianity today. You cannot say that the life and ministry of Jesus was pointing to institutions that meet for Sunday worship services. It's not in there. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You can't look at the life of Christ and say, oh yeah, this is what he meant. Sunday morning worship services in big buildings. You can't get there. So Christianity doesn't look much like the movement Jesus initially started. So we have to deconstruct Christianity to get to the life of Christ. So we can deconstruct from Christianity, and let's go to the next level down, which is Christian. Before there was the institution of Christianity, there were Christians, gatherings, semi-formal gatherings of followers of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Acts chapter 11, and here's how it went. As, As the message of Christ's love and forgiveness was spreading from the Jews to the Greeks to the Roman Empire, um, word got out, and, and the, the, the Roman Empire needed to give these Christ followers a name, and here's how it went. Greeks were also told the good news about the Lord Jesus in Antioch. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Keep in mind, the life and ministry of Jesus is about love and grace, and that was, that was moving past Jerusalem into the Roman Empire, and at that time, the disciples were called Christians, first at Antioch. 200 miles north of Jerusalem, as this message of Christ's love, grace, and forgiveness was spreading, they were called Christians. Now, at first, the title Christian was derogatory. It was accusatory. They're calling these followers of Christ little Christ, little Christians, this humiliated, crucified leader, this rabbi, right? You're following this Christ. You're a little Christ. Well, the early Christians actually took that on as a badge of honor. They took it on as a badge of honor and said, yes, we are with that humiliated Christ because his humiliation was, in fact, the greatest act of love the world has ever known. As he takes the suffering and the, and the failures of the wor- world upon himself and dies for it, gives his life as a sacrifice for it, yes, we're with Jesus. Yes, we are little Christs. But we're not exploring Christianity this summer. 
We're not even exploring what it means to be a Christian this summer. We're moving beyond that, deeper than that. We're not just talking about what it means to be a Christian. Before Christians, there was the Christ, the Christ. Now, the word Christ is, of course, very deeply associated with Jesus. It's a title. It's a title. It's a descriptor. Now, during the time of Christ, there was all kinds of discussion about who he was. Keep in mind, he was creating quite a stir in the area of Judea, in the Roman Empire, a conquered area of the Roman Empire. He was creating quite a stir. All the, uh, the, the poor people were rallying to Christ. He was an advocate for the poor, an advocate for the sick. He was coming against political oppressors and against religious oppressors. So he was creating quite a movement of tens of thousands of people. And so everybody was debating, who is this Jesus? Some people said he was just a great teacher. Some people say he's a, he's a prophet. Some people were even saying he's the resurrected or reincarnated Elijah from the Old Testament, right? So Jesus pulls his core disciples together, and he says, who do you say that I am? In Mark 8, 29, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And you can imagine maybe an awkward silence among the disciples. Is this a trick question? Jesus asked a lot of trick questions. Is this a trick question? Is he trying to catch us? You know, I don't want to be wrong. I'm not saying anything. Well, Peter, who's the bold one, steps up and he says, I'll give it a shot. Jesus, I think you are the Christ. And Matthew, I think you're Christ, son of the living God. He really goes for it. I'm going to take a stab at it. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. In fact, upon this rock, upon your declaration that I'm the Christ, son of the living God, I will build my church. This new community that I'm forming will be built on the statement that I am the Christ. Well, what does Christ mean? We say it all the time, right? Jesus is the Christ or Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? Well, Christ simply means the anointed one or one called by God to save. Christ is a title of Jesus. Jesus has hundreds of titles. Christ is is one of them, probably the most popular. He's the one called by God to save. And so when we talk about Jesus, we say Jesus Christ. Now we say Jesus Christ almost as though Christ is his last name. It's not. It's a title, it's a descriptor of who he was and his mission. He is anointed or called to save. Jesus, Yeshu is his first name. Christ is his title. It's one of his titles. And so we're going to look beyond Christianity. We're going to look even beyond what it means to be a Christian. And we're going to look even beyond the titles of Christ. And this summer, we're just going to see Jesus. We're just going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're also going, to, also going to look at archaeology and scholarship to really dive into who this Jesus was. Quite simply, Jesus is the name given to him at birth. In fact, we see in Luke 1, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, his given name. Now, Jesus was a very common name at the time, very common name. Um, and there's nothing unusual about the name of Jesus. A lot of people were named Jesus. But the names that people were given in Hebrew culture were very specific and very intentional. The name Jesus is a compound word. Uh, in Hebrew, Yeshua. Yah is, uh, comes from uh, Jehovah, which is God. Shua means to save. So the name Jesus means God saves. Now again, a lot of people were named Jesus. But specifically, this Jesus was named for a very specific reason, that through him, God would bring the salvation of the world. Now, names in Hebrew meant everything. Your name meant everything. Here in America, not so much. My name is Scott. Scott. 
It's just it's kind of harsh to even say Scott. Uh, Latins can't even say Scott. They have to pretty up by saying Escot. That sounds better. I wish I was named Escot. But Scott. It's the least popular name in America. I mean, it's like it's the bottom of the list. If somebody was having a child and a son and, and oh, what's his name? Oh, I'm naming him Scott. You look at him like, don't you even love your kid? You know? So, and I don't even know what Scott means. I looked it up once, like 30 years. I don't even know what it means. I don't even care. But in Hebrew, your name meant everything. Everything. And so the name Jesus meant so much. Meant so much. Now, in order for us to understand who this Jesus was, we do have to deconstruct 2,000 years of Christian history. We have to deconstruct what it means to be a Christian, and that's for better or for worse. We even want to sort of deconstruct the titles around Jesus that were given to him during his life and after his death. And we want to look at the core, simple, beautiful life of Jesus and ask why that life changes the world. That's our journey for the summer. It's going to be very cool. Now, in order for us to, to understand the life of Jesus, we have to understand its context. Context is everything. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand the context. There is a, a biblical illiteracy in the Western world, largely because we don't understand the ancient Near East context of the life of Jesus. So as we go through his life, we're going to have an understanding of the na- ancient Near Eastern context of Jesus. Because if we read the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, through the lens of a Westerner, we won't have a clue. But if we understand ancient Near East context, specifically that Jesus lived in, all of the Gospels will be enlightened, illuminated, and we will go, ah, now I understand why Jesus said this. Now I understand why Jesus did this. Now I understand who he really is. And we will grow in our appreciation of him big time. So in order for us to understand context, we not only have to look at the Bible, but we do have to look at extra biblical evidence, archaeology, scholarship. So again, we're going to toggle back and forth between the Bible, my babblings, and the scholars. So uh, take a look. The area around where he was born is far from stable. Now, why does that matter? Well, the Roman Empire is a large, large place. And we've got a map. And if we draw in what we know, here's Rome. And this is roughly the Roman Empire. Now, this is the province of Judea. This is where Jesus grows up. Now, this is a frontier of the Roman Empire against the entire Parthian Empire to the east over here. If they keep control here, then the Romans have free access to the Eastern Mediterranean and they can keep the Parthians at bay and keep the Roman Empire intact. Now, what the Romans have done up to now is use a strong man, a local client king called Herod the Great to keep control in this area. And he's done a great job for about 33 years, but he's now died and there is a power vacuum. The Romans are forced to intervene and establish direct Roman governorial control. And by 6 AD, they've done it. But along the way, they've had to crush a number of rebellions and crucify something like 2,000 people. So it's no surprise that the Romans are particularly sensitive about what happens, particularly here in this tiny, far-flung outpost of the Roman Empire. Now, couple that with the fact that the temple authorities have become very upset at some of Jesus's antics. And you can start to understand why Jesus has to go. If we don't understand the context, we won't understand the ministry of Jesus, and we won't understand why he, as the scholar said, had to go. In order for us to understand the context of the ministry of Jesus, we have to understand this map. You see that uh, little orange dot on the far bottom right called Judea? 
That's where Jesus was born. That's where he grew up. That is so critical to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had to hold that sliver of land. If they did not hold that sliver of land, they would not have a land bridge to North Africa. If they did not hold that sliver of land, they would not control the Eastern Mediterranean. If they did not hold that sliver of land, they would not be able to keep the Eastern armies at bay. They had to hold that sliver of land at all cost. Now, here's a few truths to consider. In order for Rome to hold that sliver of land, they had to control the Hebrew people. That's Hebrew land. Now, the Hebrews were religious people. They were theocrats. They wanted God to be their king. So in order to control the Hebrew people, they had to control the religious leaders. The religious leaders spoke for God. The religious people served the religious leaders. So Rome had to control the religious leaders. In order to control the religious leaders, they had to give them freedom to practice their religion and give them privileges of wealth and power. The whole system was corrupt. We know stereotypically that politics is corrupt, and we know that stereotypically religion is corrupt. Religion and politics collided in corruption in that little sliver of land called Judea. The Roman government had to control the Judean people, had to control the Hebrew people, and they did so by paying the religious leaders to keep the Hebrews pacified. They had to keep the peace at all costs. So as a result, the entire culture was corrupt. There was rampant political corruption. Keep in mind, Rome is an, is an invading army. So Rome imposed heavy taxation on the invaded people. And so the invaded people, the Hebrews, had to pay tax to Rome to keep them oppressed. How do you think that goes over? It's terrible. I mean, there's no more injustice than that. I'm going to take my hard-earned money and pay the oppressors to oppress us. That's incredible uh, corruption, incredible injustice, right? There, there were a very few rich people that had uh, wealth, they had privilege. These are sort of the, the, the Roman staff, right? The Roman citizens, the Roman soldiers. But then they also paid a few Jewish leaders to oppress their own people. So they paid the religious leaders, they paid tax gatherers to oppress their own people. The sick, the disabled had no place to go. They had no justice, no one to look after them. There was also rampant political oppression as Rome is pouring money into the religious leaders to keep the Hebrew people pacified. They're using the name of God to oppress their own people. And they do that through religious manipulation. Now, religious manipulation is very common in every religion. Religious manipulation is very common. But funded by an invading government, the oppression and injustice is off the charts. So the Roman-funded religious leaders use God's name and use God's law to crush the Hebrew people by telling them they're not good enough, by telling them that they're cursed, by telling them because they're unfaithful, Rome has invaded them. All you deserve is oppression. All you deserve is injustice. And saying that in the name of God and using God's law as a hammer. In order to understand the life and ministry of Jesus, we have to understand this point here. Rome was satisfied when the Hebrew people were pacified. That's the context of the life of Jesus. Rome was satisfied when the Hebrew people were pacified, and the Hebrew people were pacified by the never-ending oppression of religious manipulation. Rome paid religious leaders to oppress their own people through religious manipulation. So they lived in constant fear, constant fear of God's judgment, constant fear of Rome, constant fear of poverty, constant fear of being sick or disabled because there was no hope for you at that point. 
And so as a result, they lived with a deep and profound longing for salvation. They longed for somebody to rise up and free them from political oppression and free them from religious oppression. They were so longing for deliverance. And so when Jesus began his ministry in 26 AD, Jesus was quenching a deep thirst that they had for a savior. And they followed him. In droves, they followed him. And as they followed him, Jesus really had two priorities, two related priorities. One was that Jesus tore down barriers that divide. There were barriers everywhere, barriers between humankind and God, barriers between one another. Jesus came to tear them down. And then Jesus came to build up a community that unites. This is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ summarized. He had a mission, tear down barriers that divide, build up a community that unites. So what are the barriers that Jesus tore down? What barriers did Jesus tear down? He tore down all of them. I can't think of a barrier that Jesus did not tear down. He tore down the barrier of classism. You know what classism is? You pit one class against another. You pit the rich against the poor, the poor against the rich. We do this all the time. It's like a sport in America to pit the rich rich against the poor. And we're like, we're in, right? We're in for the political battle, right? Who can I look down on today, right? Who can I accuse of what today? All the rich do this, all the poor. And we just are lobbing these classism volleys at each other all the time. Well, that's true today. It was absolutely true in ancient times. There were the very few rich, let's call them the one percenters, and there was the mass of the poor. And they were pitting each other against one another. Jesus comes and tears that down. Jesus calls the poor to himself, and that wasn't particularly unusual. But then he called the rich to himself, and that raised some eyebrows. Because when you call the poor to your side, you're tagged. Okay, that's a movement for the poor, and you're supposed to hate the rich. Jesus then called the rich. You could follow me too. He befriended the poor and befriended the rich, and he tore down classism. And when he created his church, he says, there will be no classism in the church. There will be no, you know, privileged seats for the rich and cheap seats for the poor. We are all brothers and sisters together. In Christ, there's neither rich nor poor. He tore it down. Jesus also tore down racism. He tore down the barrier of racism. Let me be just real clear and real bold. Every one of us are born racist. It's the way it is. It's like breathing. We're born racist. It's natural. And frankly, there's some social benefit to being a racist. Now, follow me. There's, There's safety in clinging to the same kind, right? If we all speak the same language, we all have the same traditions, we're all basically the same color, we share our same heritage, there's strength there, there's pride there. I've got your back, you got my back. So when it comes to nation building and war making, I mean, all the fun stuff of, uh, of humankind, right? Clustering with same and hating the different, it's normal and in more ancient times, you can even make an argument that it was necessary for survival. But that's part of the brokenness of this world. So Jesus came to tear down racism. Normally, if somebody was going to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, you'd make a 100-mile detour around the uh, Jordan River. Because if you went straight to Galilee, you'd have to go through Samaria. Samaria were half-breeds. This is what they were called, half-breed dogs. Jews would not look at Samaritans. Jews would not talk to Samaritans. All Jews would do would would be to accuse Samaritans, and Samaritans would accuse the Jews. The Jews would accuse the Gentiles. The Gentiles would accuse the Jews. Hate 
everywhere. Racist hate everywhere. Well, Jesus is walking from Jerusalem to Galilee and goes right through Samaria. And everybody's saying, whoa, you can't do that. You cannot do that. We're Jews. They're Samaritans. Watch me. And he goes right there. Not only does he go through Samaria, but he befriends people and he talks to people and he ministers to them and he loves them and he shares this living water of life and grace and forgiveness to the Samaritans. Later, Jesus tells the story of a hero, a hero who saw a man that was mugged and beat, robbed and left in the street to die. He tells the story of a great hero who goes to his side, bandages him up, puts him in a hospital and pays for it, right? Who's this incredible hero? The good Samaritan. Even in Jesus' stories, the hero is a Samaritan. I mean, I'm gonna get a little political and stuff, but it's like us telling a story of the great hero of, of this story is an illegal immigrant, right? Some people would be, are you illegals, right? We, we want barriers, right? We want, we want to say, no, it's us and them, and you're a danger. Jesus tears all that down. At the end of his ministry, Jesus says, this gospel, this good news, love and grace must be shared with the whole world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, gasp, and the ends of the earth. That's the Gentiles. That's the Romans, the people we hate the most. Jesus says, everybody is welcome. He tears down the barrier of racism. Jesus tears down the barrier of sexism. Back in ancient civilization, it was very common. Men had their place, usually of privilege. Women had their place of servitude. That was just sort of normal. Not in the kingdom of heaven. Not in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, Jesus ministers to women publicly. You would not do that in ancient Near East culture. You wouldn't have public conversations with, with women. Jesus did. Jesus touched women in public as a sign of grace and as a sign of healing, as a sign of care. He even spoke with the adulterous woman and the woman at the well who had five husbands, these sexually immoral people that were just considered by the men to be sort of you know, dirty but they are the ones that were equally guilty, but they were men, so they had privilege and they had higher esteem, even though they shared the same sin. Jesus broke every barrier. Some of his core disciples were women. There were women prophetesses and deaconesses and women apostles in the New Testament. They, they, they preached and they led home churches in the early church. In the kingdom of heaven, Galatians 3, there is neither male nor female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. He tore down the barriers of sexism. Jesus tore down the barriers of mysticism. Mysticism, I gotta take just a little bit of time with this. We all have some mysticism in us, and it's dangerous. Mysticism is dangerous. Mysticism holds that there is some spiritual barrier between us and God. That's essentially where mysticism comes from. There's a spiritual barrier between us and God that we have to kind of navigate through. And so if my life is going good, it must be that I did something good to get good things from God. That's mysticism. If things are going well, we say I'm blessed, right? That's kind of a spiritual hashtag, blessed. All right, I'm blessed because I did some good things. Good things are happening to me. It's pure mysticism. Or if something bad happened, it's because God or the gods are getting me back for doing something bad. That's mysticism. Mysticism is saying, I need to do good so that I can get good things from the cosmos. Or if I do bad, bad things will happen from the cosmos. That's pure mysticism. It's in all of us. Mysticism has to kind of 
navigate our way. What is God's will? And, uh, you know, if I got a call from this company over here, it must be a sign that maybe we should move. Stop. Mysticism is nonsense. Don't look for signs. Don't look for God's will in the cosmos. Don't think good things are blessings and bad things are curses and good things come because of good things I've done or bad things come because of bad things I've done. That's just mysticism and nonsense. Jesus tears it all down in one epic story that I cannot wait to talk to you about, Midsummer. <laughs> Jesus also tears down the barrier of sin. It is thought in a lot of religious environments, all religious environments, that sin separates us from God. God's a holy God, we're not. God's a perfect God, we fail, therefore we're separate from God. That's just standard religion. So you may have heard even in Christian churches that sin separates us from God. You may have heard in Christian churches that God cannot be in the presence of sin. That's just normal for us to say even in the Christian church. It's not true. Jesus came to tear down that barrier. Jesus is the full expression of God. He's the full nature of God. And what does he do when he's on earth? He marches right into the house of a sinner. He befriends the sinners. I mean, like the worst, the the woman caught in adultery, they were going to stone her to death for her sin. Guy got away, conveniently, but they're going to stone the woman to death. What does Jesus do? He kneels down with her and shares grace and love and forgiveness. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he says, now let's go walk a whole new life of love and grace, right? Sin doesn't separate us from God. Jesus took care of all that, right? All the suffering, sin, failure, brokenness of the world heaped upon Christ and he died for it. It is done, it's removed, it's covered, it's taken care of. Sin does not separate us from God. God can be in the presence of sinners like you and sinners like me. He can be because he doesn't look at us by our failure. He looks at us out of love. He looks at us through the eyes of a loving, gracious, heavenly father. Jesus tore down the barrier of sin. Jesus also tore down the barrier of religion. And this was his career. I'm telling you, the career of Jesus was tearing down the barrier of religion. Um, I very often will get comments, Scott, why are you so apoplectic against religion? You know, just back off of that a little bit. Well, it's hard to back off of that when you see the life and ministry of Jesus. He gave his life to tear down the barrier of religion. Religion, all of it, including the Christian religion, comes up with man-made systems, rules, regulations, uh, ways to obey God, religious ceremonies, religious disciplines. These are the things you must do in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn God's blessing, in order to earn eternal life. Every religion is the same. It's man-made rules and regulations supposedly to earn things from God. Christianity is no different. It's no different typically speaking. Jesus came to tear that down. And he did so very expressly with the Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, scribes of his time. These are the religious leaders that were paid by Rome to keep the Hebrews pacified. And they did that through the weapon of religion. They weaponized God's law. They weaponized God's law. So God's law is in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. The Pharisees, during the time of Christ, counted 613 laws in God's word. Now, those 613 laws were a gift that God gave humankind to civilize us. We were barbarians. Barbarians. God gives us his law roughly 4,000 years ago, eh, 3,200 years ago, gives us his law to civilize barbarians. 
saying things like, you might not want to kill each other. You might not want to take each other's stuff. You might not want to take each other's spouses. You might want to treat people with respect. And if you break one of these laws, there needs to be consequences to deter people from treating people badly. It's, a, it's, a, it's no different than our American laws. Just God says, hey, start with these, 613 of them. Th- these are ways to civilize barbarian humanity, right? Treat each other well. Religion comes alongside, turns God's laws to civilize us into a religion, and says these are the things you must do to earn God's approval. Turns it into a religion. What the Pharisees did was take the 613 laws of God and pack on what they called fence laws. We need to build more laws as a fence around God's laws. They built a fence of 6,000 other laws to keep people from breaking the 613 original laws. This is what religion does. More rules, more regulations, more doctrine, more barriers between God and man. Jesus says this about the Pharisees. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, they're absolutely lazy in their own faith, but they will put barriers and laws and rules and regulations and ceremonies on other people at will. Why did they do that? Because they're paid by Rome to keep people pacified, and nothing keeps people pacified and weak like religion. Jesus came to tear it down, to tear it down. Religion says you're not good enough, you're not right enough, you're not moral enough, you're not devout enough, you're not faithful enough, you have to do more. Religion says here's what you should do, and you're not doing it, so you're under God's judgment. That's what religion does. Jesus came to bring something entirely different. Jesus came to strip away religion so that we would see God as he is. God as a heavenly father who loves us. And he proved his love by first giving us the law so we won't kill, murder each other and hurt each other. And he meant that to civilize us, not to create a religion. And then he gave his son Jesus to live a perfect life for us and to pay the penalty of our failures on a cross and forgive us so that all we will see is the love of a heavenly father. See, Jesus tore down barriers that divide and finally he built up a community that unites. Jesus was a uniter. He united humankind with God and united humankind with each other. And he revealed God's heart like nobody else who ever lived. As Jesus was hanging out with sinners, he was accused of being from the devil. Only the devil would hang out with those sinners. Jesus says, these are my people, right? I love these people. Give me the poor, the sinner, the least, the last, and lost. Give me everybody. I'll take them all and I will love them. And he told three stories in Luke 15. He says, God's heart is like the heart of a shepherd who loses a sheep, finds it, and celebrates. God's heart is like a woman who lost a coin, finds it, and celebrates. God's heart is like a dad whose rebellious son left, but returns to be loved by the Father and celebrates. Jesus doesn't want us to see a religion. He doesn't want us to adhere to a religion. He wants us to experience unity with God by love and experience unity with one another by love. He wants us to receive that love and share that love with the world. As we talk about the life of Christ this summer, we're talking about a life that tore down every barrier and a life that builds up a new community of love. That life of Christ is ours to live now. 
This is not gonna be a summer of a history lesson 2,000 years ago about a life somebody lived named Yeshua. That life of Jesus is ours to live right now. Right now. Galatians 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I now live is the life of Christ lived through me. Jesus says in, in, in John 15, as he's about to head to the cross, he looks at his followers and he says, you know what? You guys are gonna do even greater things than I did. Jesus did some great things. He looks at us, his church, and he says, you're gonna keep this life going. The life of Christ is not just his to live. The life of Christ is ours to live today. Being loved by God thoroughly, unconditionally, and loving others unconditionally. That's the life of Christ, not just for him, it's for us today. This is what we, we'll be doing this summer. We'll be talking about the life of Christ and we'll be saying every week, that life is ours to live. And it's a great privilege to continue to live out the life of Christ. We're gonna have a good time together this summer. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the life of Christ as we see it so clearly in the pages of your word, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see also the life of Christ through the pages of history, archeology, span and scholarship. And God, as we weave all of those things together, we will see a life emerge that is nothing less than the full expression of your heart for us. And for every believer who comes to this church over the summer, I pray that their faith would be strengthened. I know it will be strengthened in powerful ways. For everybody that does not yet believe in Jesus, I pray that as they come, they will be able to say with absolute certainty, I'm with him. I may not have it all figured out, I may not adopt everything of the Christian religion, but I'm with Jesus. I want to appreciate his life, respect his life, honor his life, and by his power, live his life here and now to continue the life of Christ, a life of love, of grace, of mercy, of kindness, of selflessness and sacrifice so that this world would be continually changed by the love of our Heavenly Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen.